Welcome to Her Story, the history of Southeast Asia told from her perspective. We'll discover historical figures, matriarchal societies, and contemporary female icons, and maybe learn about ourselves along the way. I'm Agas Ramirez, and this is episode 15, the last episode of season 1. Throughout this season, we've covered prominent figures from around the Southeast Asian Age of Commerce. Our first episode was about Tsupialat, the last queen of Burma set the tone for a series of stories about women who have led armies, started uprisings, introduced new ideologies, and challenged the norms of their time. Some of them turned out to be more fiction than historical fact, like Princess Orduha. We also talked about the matrilineal Minangkabau Society and the matriarchal Cham Society. I must admit there was a slight detour with Radena Jenkartini, who belongs in Season 2, but... I couldn't pass up the chance to share the interview with a young woman from Indonesia who's making her story herself. Thank you to the patrons, Matt, Chito, Ashley, Shireen, Chanda, Yati, Kara, and Mando, as well as Fidelity of the History of Colonization podcast, the women of Tuk Tuk Box, and so many other friends and followers of the show. You keep this project going, and I hope you stick around because this is just season one. This episode... Episode 15 is coming from my own country. It's not about a person, but a group of people, usually women, called the Babaylan, shamans endowed with powers to cure the sick, predict right times of planting and harvest, and invoke the souls of ancestors to guide the deceased to the afterlife. To understand the Babaylan and her role in pre-colonial Philippines, we have to go back, way back, to the very beginning actually, when a hawk-like bird, tired of flying and not having a place where it could alight, stared up the water against the sky. The sky, in order to restrain the water and prevent it from mounting to it, burdened it with islands, and also ordered the bird to alight and build its nest on them, and leave them in peace. They said that men had come from the stem of a large bamboo which only had two nodules. That bamboo, floating on the water, was carried by the waters to the feet of the bird, which was on the seacoast. The bird, in anger at what had struck his feet, opened the bamboo by picking at it with his beak. When it was opened, out from one nodule came the man, and from the other, the woman. This version of the creation myth published in 1903 didn't name the man and the woman, but an earlier publication from 1590, the Boxer Codex, did. They were Sikalak and Sikabai, the first man and woman, created at the same time, from the same bamboo. This myth suggests that these pre-colonial societies thought of man and woman as both whole and equal, quite unlike the biblical account of Adam and Eve. This is one common explanation for how the Babaylan, mostly women, were afforded power and status despite their gender. Or more accurately, they were afforded power and status precisely because of their gender. We'll go into that a bit more later. Dr. Sue Salazar, the father of new Philippine historiography and pioneer of the Pantayong Pananaw perspective, identified three figures of authority in the barangay or the old village. 
the Datu, the Panday, and the Babaylan. The Datu, or local chieftain, was in charge of the economic and political organization of the barangay. The Panday, or blacksmith, was responsible for making weapons, agricultural tools, jewelry, and household utensils. The Babaylan, or predominantly female shaman, was the specialist in culture, religion, medicine, and theoretical knowledge about the phenomenon of nature. He later added the fourth figure, the Bayani, the chief warrior or hero who maintained law and order in the barangay. According to Febi Mangahas, Filipino historians locate the Babaylan in a tropical island world of abundance. Property was communal and the bilateral kinship system meant that women could inherit property, choose whom to marry, and separate from their spouses at will for reasons of incompatibility, childlessness, and even a husband's refusal to do the housework. But the islands, often subject to storms, earthquakes, and volcanic eruptions, evoked in our ancestors a supreme deity they called Bathala, and a world of spirits, both good and bad. The presence and sometimes fear of these unseen powers gave rise to a group of people who could serve as the bridge between the worlds. Jaime Vindarashan said that indeed, locating the roots of Filipino religiosity starts with the Babaylan. This is a Visaya word, by the way. Visaya is the main language in most of the Visayas, Palawan, and Mindanao. They're also known as Catalonan in Tagalog, which is the main language of the central and the southern part of Luzon where I live. They were known by many other names. Daitan in Samar, Mumbaki among the Ifugaos, Mabunong in Benguet, Mensipok in Sagada, Baglan in Pangasinan in Locos, Mamalian in Pampanga, Babaylana in Capi, Santique, Iloilo, Cebu, Negros, Bailan among the Mandaya, Mabalian among the Bogobos, Kapandayan in Lanao. All this is to say, of course, that you could find these feminine shamans all across what is today the Philippine archipelago. Let's go back to Babaylan and Catalonan, which seem to be the most common terms. The roots of these words are not clear. Babaylan sounds similar to babae or woman. Catalonan has the word talon, which means forest in Old Tagalog. Generally, the Babaylan were women. This is evident in the language the Spanish colonizers used when documenting their encounters with them. But Fray Ignacio Alcina documented that although most Babaylan were women, men could perform this function if they were effeminate or asog. They had to dress and act like women to be called Babaylan. They performed important rites and rituals, often in forests, which were considered sacred. The place of worship among the Tagalogs was actually called Simbahan. Filipinos today would know Simbahan as a Catholic church, but it wasn't always that way. The most important place, the Pinaka Simbahan, was usually on a hilltop in the forest and usually in an obscure cave. William Henry Scott says that the Babaylan were given to seizures and trances in which they spoke with the voice of forest spirits and acted out conflicts in the spirit world, brandishing spears, foaming at the mouths, often becoming violent enough to require restraint. They're also called daitan, which means befriended, in recognition of their patronage by a particular forest spirit known as duata. The Babaylan were endowed with powers such as the ability to cure the sick, predict the right time to plant and harvest, and invoke the powers of the Anito, 
or the souls of the ancestors to help and accept the dying to become one of them. The powers of the Babaylan were not acquired simply. Certainly not everyone could become one. They came to their calling through a long process of tests such as surviving a long and serious illness or a near-fatal accident. At other times, the tests would involve self-inflicted punishment or penitence. They might also suffer insanity which could only be cured by accepting the call. They then attach themselves as alabai, apprentices, to an older babaylan, frequently a relative. Here's another important thing. Women became babaylans usually when they reached middle age or during menopause. This is because, as we already said, it's a long and hard process for somebody to be initiated into the sacred ancient wisdom and to be able to wield this gift for the benefit of the people. The potency of the Babaylan's powers could then be proven through the show of extraordinary prowess. For example, in Laguna in the 16th century, one such Babaylan was said to have lifted the person into the air by a mere stroke of their hand. Another instance that showed one had become a Babaylan would be evidence of the ability to become possessed by the Anito. This was known in Tagalog as Pagsapi, we would say Sinasapian siya. Through this, they could speak with the ancestors whose message was then transmitted to the members of the community. Being beautiful was considered an advantage for the Babaylan, specifically for the drama, song, and dance ritual she performed to coax a soul back into a sick person's head. At the time, it was believed that a person had at least two souls. One was attached to the mortal body, and the other could journey elsewhere. If a soul journeyed elsewhere, the body became susceptible to sickness. A Babaylan would perform a ritual in which leaves, flowers, and perfume were placed on the head of the sick person to provide a place for the soul to sit on. She would dance too, movements that would emulate snakes and other reptiles considered sacred creatures from the underworld. Sometimes, the dancing would put the Babaylan into a trance, which would be followed by a prediction as to the fate of the sick. The prediction would be done through animal sacrifice. A young woman would pierce the sacrificed animal to death while the members of the community danced. Blood from the animal would be taken by the babaylan, smeared on the head of the sick and everyone in the crowd. Once the animal was dead, the innards would be examined for omens. The meat of the animal would then be shared by the community. The babaylan were assigned a share of offerings, usually choice cuts of the hog, But in full-scale rituals sponsored by prominent datus, they went home with heirlooms, valuables like porcelain plates or gold ornaments. One ritual, observed in the province of Batangas, documented that the Babaylan laid roasted pig and chicken on an altar, among other food, as an offering to the ancestor. Statuettes were placed on a table with a list containing as many as 163 names of dead ancestors. On such occasions, the Babaylan was referred to as Amanibili. As food was offered, the Babaylan would sing and dance to a slow song, Halina mga nuno, tanggapin ninyo ang hain ng inyong mga apo. Ancestors, please receive the offering of your grandsons and granddaughters. These ceremonies had their own vocabulary. Ginayaw were offerings of spherical yellow rice cakes. Tinorlok was the hog reserved for sacrifice. Taruk was the Babaylan's dance, Bodyong her bamboo trumpet, and Banay a fan or fly whisk with which she kept time. 
She would also have an abyan, a spirit guide, kind of like the familiar in European folklore. The Babaylan's healing prowess was described in dramatic terms. Agaw, to carry off by force, was to snatch a pain from the sufferer. Tawag, to call someone out, was to summon the spirit that had kidnapped the soul. And Bawi, to rescue, was to free the invalid from the grip of the afflicting spirit. Another 16th century ritual in Cebu was described as follows. I will quote William Henry Scott at length here. The site was adorned with green branches, palm leaf cloths, and colorful blankets, and the offerings, red blossoms, roasted fish, rice and millet cakes wrapped in leaves, and a piece of imported kambay cloth were set out on large plates. A live, large hog, raised and fattened for this end, lay bound on a grass mat, and cacophonous music was provided by gongs, drums, and resonant porcelain plates. The Babaylan was an old woman wearing a headdress topped by a pair of horns and accompanied by a second medium, both of them carrying bamboo trumpets which they either played or spoke through. They both proceeded to dance around the hog with scarves in their hands, acting out a dialogue between the spirits possessing them, drinking wine on their behalf, and sprinkling some of it on the hog. Finally, a spear was given the presiding Babaylan, and with it she began a series of feints at the hog, as the tempo of her movements increased to a frenzy, and then, with a sudden thrust, ran the victim through the heart with unerring aim. The foreheads of the main beneficiaries of the ceremony were marked with the blood of the victim, whose wounds were then stanched, and the mat that had been bloodied during the sacrifice was carefully burned. The Babaylan was then divested of her akutrama and wakened from her trance while the hog was singed, butchered, and cooked. The feasting then began, everybody receiving a share, though the flesh, touched by the spear, was reserved for the Babaylan. Some of the meat was taken down to an altar on the seashore or riverbank after prayers where it was placed on a raft together with the altar and all the other paraphernalia and set adrift. This brought the ritual to a close, though the celebration continued. But this rich, mystical world of the Babaylan would soon be thrown off balance. Indeed, as the Babaylan named Karyapa from the island of Bohol chanted in 1609, This land will be changed. Other people will possess it. With another culture, other practices. This town is to be utterly destroyed. This province with the rest of its islands are to be subjugated. After the break, we'll talk about what happened to the Babaylan with the coming of the Spanish colonizers and where we find the Babaylan today, which is in more places than you might think.
Sino ka? Hindi ako sinuka. Sa ganda kong to, mukha ba akong sinuka? Ang ibig ko po sabihin, sino ka po? Anong pangalan niyo at tagasang kayo? Sa mundo ng kasinungalingan, ang tanging nakakaalam ng katotohanan. Ako ang dakilang babayla ng San Sinuko. Pwede niyo na rin ako tawagin sa pangalang Gloria. That's Dempos Romanas, the dakilang babayla ng San Sinuko. I don't quite know how to translate this, but more or less the noblest shaman of all of creation, it sounds better in Filipino. This is from a 2018 show called Bagani, Hero. It's a drama fantasy series starring Enrique Hill and Liza Soberano. The Babaylan also gives her name as Gloria. If this were an ethnography, we'd be calling that her Catholic name. Speaking of Catholics, Antonio Pigafetta, Ferdinand Magellan's official chronicler, came to the islands and witnessed the unthinkable. Old women leading religious rites. Where he was from, they could only be brujas, witches. But he didn't call them witches. He referred to them as viejas, which in Spanish means old. As we mentioned, babaylans were menopausal women. He wrote that the old women stepped on a kambay cloth, paid homage to the sun, sounded the reed trumpets, did a lot of dancing, recited prayers, drank wine from a cup, with finally one of them killing the pig. Pig of Feta recalled, The other old woman dips the end of her trumpet in the pig's blood, and with it marks with blood the forehead of her husband and of her companion, and then the rest of the people. But the Las Viejas did not do this to us. Of course, only those who share the same belief and practice must be touched with the blood of the sacrificial animal. The Babaylan marked off the space between them and the newcomers. At the end of his narrative, Pigafetta wrote, That done, the old women took off their robes and ate what was in the two dishes, inviting only the women to join them. Only old women are able to consecrate the boar in this manner, and this animal is never eaten unless it is killed like this. Sixty years later, Miguel de la Huarca, the chronicler to Miguel Lopez de Legazpi's enterprise, called Picavetas Viejas by her real name, Babaylana. Luarca described her as a woman possessed by the demons whose body is hurled to the ground, foaming at the mouth after so much chanting and dancing. But he also said that her followers attributed to her the power to heal the sick, foretell the future, and save the dead from hell. I need to mention here Estrella Bangot Banwa. She's a famous ancestor to present-day Babaylans. Stories about Estrella tell of her powers to bring rain that ended drought and famine. It's said that a Spanish priest who tried to disrupt her samba, or a ritual for peace, was turned into stone when he didn't heed Estrella's request to stop his behavior. Much later, Fray Ignacio Alcina said that the Babaylan was someone who had access to persons close to the gods, who were her friends, and therefore could mediate between the gods and men, especially for people who in their illnesses and other needs had recourse to her for some remedy. This is important too. Dr. Florentino H. Ornedo, a philosophy professor and ethnocultural historian, analyzed Filipino myths for insights into indigenous perceptions of reality. 
In The World and the Ways of the Ivatana Nitu, published in 1980, he describes the Ivatan view of the world as divided not between nature and supernatural, but between the visible and the invisible. The visible world is the world ordinarily perceivable to the senses. The invisible world, on the other hand, is the aggregate beings which cannot be perceived by human sense, but which can make themselves visible when they so will to do. Invisibles include beings of non-human origin and souls of the dead. He said that Filipino thought, represented by the Vatan case, sees the world into distinct but co-penetrant worlds of the visible and the invisible. Then, based on his studies of the Subanon, Ifugao, and Bago myths, the world was a layered structure consisting of an upper world of the gods, a middle world of humans, and a lower world. And though layered, these three levels remained somehow accessible to each other. The gods come down from the sky and descend back to it. Humans become anitos and join the invisibles, Humans and the people below share knowledge and blessings of nature. But there was a hierarchy, and higher beings were acknowledged through sacrificial offerings. So, to mediate and communicate among these layers, there was the Babaylan. From Fray Alzina's account, the woman was selected by the Diwata to be their medium because of her ability to go where the Diwata dwelled, via possession or trance. In Alzinas' eyes, though, these powers were all coming from the devil with whom the Mabailan cohabited. But even Alzina at one point admitted that the ancestors of the Indios had a vague idea of the true god, of the one and only maker. But he thought that with the passing of time, due to the deceits of the devil, the concept was obscured. It's obvious where they were going with this, right? As long as the Babaylan existed, the Catholic faith would not be able to take root in the people they intended to colonize and convert. And so began a bloody war for the soul of the islands and its people. Unlike the Datu and the Panday who cooperated with and were rewarded by the colonizers, there was no place for these powerful women in the New World Order. Now it gets interesting because this part I didn't learn in school. The Babaylan led many of the earliest and violent resistances to Spanish colonization and Christianization. They defied the reduction or the relocation of people to the newly created towns or Bajo de las Campanas. Instead of submitting to evangelization, they urged the people to resist and preserve their own beliefs and practices. This frustrated friars who campaigned against the brujas, which is Anitera Maldita, idol worshippers, Mala Mujer, Bad Woman, Diabolica, among others. The historian Milagros Higuerero described how for a while the name-calling was actually ineffective. The Babaylan could persuade the people to kill their own chickens and fattened animals, demolish their households, and uproot their own coconuts to prevent their being taken over by the missionaries and the encomendero. Calling to arms their neighbors in the name of liberty, they evacuated to the mountains. In Cagayan Valley, Guerrero vividly narrates how the people sacked the church and mutilated the statues of the Virgin and saints, shouting, let us see if they will bleed. With much mockery and laughter, they hung women's skirts on the altar and made headscarves of the altar and corporal cloths. Some rebels dressed themselves in the habits of the priests. 
Guerrera listed a number of these Babaylan-led rebellions from 1596 to 1780. These are some of their names. The Pungay, the most celebrated in Cebu, Negros, and Panay in 1599. Caguenga, the provocative Vieja Anitera of Nalfotan, Segovia, in Cagayan Valley in 1607. Iga, who assumed the title Santa Maria, causing Fray Juan de Abacus to reduce Gapan Nueva Ecija by blood and fire in 1646. And one who called herself Santissima, the highest god in Oton, Iloilo, in 1664. She was punished by death, impaled on a bamboo pole in the mouth of the river for crocodile feed. So you see, the colonizers retaliated with an Inquisition style of locating and eliminating Babylon presence and influence over the townspeople. Their bodies were destroyed as if to make sure they could never return. Feminist historian Carolyn Brewer of New Zealand in her scholarly work on the Babaylan, detailed how the friars finally succeeded in convincing women suspected as Babaylan in Bolinao, Pangasinan, to turn over their ceremonial instruments and stop them from practicing their craft and superstitions. The Recollects, and later the Dominicans, according to Brewer, used newly converted young boys, whom they housed and indoctrinated in the convents, as informants of the whereabouts and secret rituals of their mothers and grandmothers. The young boys would, in time, secretly give the Babaylan instruments to the priest who inquired into their uses. Armed with the compelling knowledge of the supposed Babaylan power, the friars could then impress the cabezas and the principalia, the elite, so much that they began to accompany them on raids of the Babaylan hideouts. The Babaylan, powerless in the face of their former datus and followers, witnessed the burning of the Anitos, a moment that signaled the end of the world as they knew it. They either converted or went underground. That's right. They didn't disappear. They changed, evolved, and in many cases survived. Few of us know that they were still a formidable force when the Americans arrived, and even fewer know what happened after that. The anthropologist Alicia Magos said that the Bubailan evolved into revolutionary leaders by the 19th century, fighting against Spain and then the U.S. In one particular example, Magos writes, In a testimony given by Jose de Luzuriaga to Colonel Denby before the Philippine Commission in Manila on September 11, 1899, he stated that situations would have been peaceful after the province had accepted American sovereignty if not for the Babaylanes who were encouraged by agents of the Aguinaldo government to revolt. This particular revolt ended in 1901, but other Babaylan-led revolts in the area continued until 1928. And what about those who converted? Well, there isn't a lot of information, but I'm going to quote Femangahas here. Many indigenous women, some likely former Babaylans, joined the Biaterios during the 16th and 17th centuries. They weren't just Biatas, they founded their own Biaterios for Filipino women, making them autonomous from the main religious orders which were in the hands of the male, Spanish, and colonial hierarchy. For example, the Biaterio de San Sebastián de Calumpang, now the Congregation of the Augustinian Recollect Sisters, was founded by Dionisia and Cecilia Talangpas y Pamintuan in 1719. 
The Augustinian Recollect Sisters is the second oldest native Filipino congregation for women, and they had to fight their way to get there. Today, you may know their school as St. Rita College. Another was Biaterio de la Campania de Jesus, founded by Ignacia del Espirito Santo in 1747, from which the present RVM Sisters of St. Mary's College originated. And remember the anitos that were burned and desecrated? Luciano Santiago would explain the immense popularity of the black images of Ermita and Santa Ana, Antipolo and Bicol during the 18th to the 19th centuries. To the people, Santiago wrote, the black image of the Virgin was no different from the anito of a priestess, referring to the bailan and her poon or deity. This was particularly powerful when the black virgins were laid to rest in a branch of the balete tree, considered a sacred, miraculous tree in the Babaylan belief system. So, they weren't able to burn the Anitos after all. They lived on and were resurrected by the people who never forgot them. Today, as Dr. Grace Nono explains in a recent NHAP webinar, we tend to depict and thus think of the Babaylan and other ritual specialists in terms of the past, she calls this the denial of the contemporaneity of the Babaylan, rooted in a linear view of history which starts with the quote-unquote discovery of the archipelago by the Europeans, thereby separating indigenous beliefs from so-called modernity. Such a perspective puts a premium on literacy and considers oral history as prehistoric, It also holds no place for the allegedly non-scientific, irrational practices of the Babaylan, such as communing with spirits. But it's not just the colonizers who have propagated this view, Dr. Nono continues. Native and mestizo elites who assimilated the European idea of progress upheld the colonial order of society. The elites who wrote history subscribed to the same linear and developmental version of time. I certainly agree with her point that the view of Europe and America as the most civilized in the world can and should be contested, that there is much to be desired in their definition of progress that is rooted, largely, in colonization, capitalism, patriarchy, and heteronormativity. All of this results in the erroneous view that the Babaylan were a pre-modern group of people, as it were, either extinct or, if they still exist, stuck in their ways, not interacting with the world of today. The living Babaylan are largely invisible from the middle class who are the likely audience of webinars, vlogs, and yes, podcasts, and other internet resources. So according to Dr. Nono, because of the assumption that the pre-colonial Babaylan are extinct, there emerged modern Babaylan who generally hail from non-indigenous, urban middle class communities and who battle patriarchal and neocolonial injustices. While these self-ascribed modern Babaylan have been doing laudable justice work, one observes how many of them have maintained their distance from indigenous ritual specialists who they probably largely assume as extinct or who they might condescend to as pre-modern, hence irrelevant to the modern context. It is because of this long-standing chasm between the indigenous Babaylan and the self-proclaimed modern Babaylan that the historian Zeus Salazar wrote in 1989 about the two kinds of Babaylan in our midst, he wrote, and I quote, the Babaylan of the elite and the Babaylan of the real Filipino still sit with their backs against each other, 
there is no continuity in thought or in action, end quote. Given this, Dr. Nono believes that without discrediting the modern Babaylan, we need to raise awareness about the Babaylan who walk among us today, but have largely been excluded from the conversations about them. In that same webinar, Agusan Manoba tribal leader Baiman Yaguyad Lucy Rico and Panay Bukidnon educator and poet Dr. Jesus Encilada talked about their experiences as indigenous leaders and the heirs of their storied traditions. Baiman Yaguyad comes from a family of Bailans, but she doesn't call herself one. She prefers the term community leader. Much of what she does proves that the role of the Babaylan was never destroyed. Their commitment to the betterment of their communities has withstood centuries of colonization. You can check out that full two-hour program and three other related webinars on the Facebook page, Museo ng Kasaysayang Panlipunan ng Pilipinas. I'll leave the link in the description box. I used to think that the Babaylan was one of the most important figures in our history. I now understand that they remain to be one of our most important figures in the history we're making today. We just don't realize it yet. There's a lot to be learned from them, not just about our past, but how we can navigate the present in a way that is more connected with the natural world and with each other. It also reminds us of a feminine power that was once believed able to bridge the seen and the unseen. And who's to say it doesn't today? This is the longest full episode so far, but there's more to talk about. In the next few weeks, we'll sit down with a couple of surprise guests. We'll go into a little more history, ritual, religion, and the Babylon's resurgence of sorts in a new Netflix series. The song we play in this episode is Babaylan by Talahe People's Music, composed by the late singer-songwriter Tony Palis. I'll play the rest of it after this clip, but it's also available on Musica Publico TV's YouTube channel if you want to hear it again. Apparently, the train broke down over the Guadalupe Bridge. Service crew found it like this. Lots of blood, no bodies, and a pile of missing persons reports. Tabi tabi po. Greetings, young Tracy. Good evening, Nuno. There was a time when magic in the world was a natural part of life. That age has passed. People fear what they don't understand. That's why our family has always been the bridge between mankind and the supernatural. You are the Babaylan Mandarima, healer and warrior. Ibunyan ang nakatago. You were born ready. Producing a podcast like this takes a lot of time and research. If you like what we do, consider joining our Patreon like Matt, Chito, Ashley, Shireen, Chanda, Yati, Kyra, and Mando, who have been supporting this podcast. Thank you also to David and Michael, who have been sending ideas and information for the show. Give as little as $1 to get a copy of the show notes with all the references, a shout-out at the end of the next episode, and the occasional bonus episode. And if you can't join us on Patreon, just tell your friends about this podcast. That works too. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at HerStoryCPod. That's HerStory, S-E-A, pod. There's so many more stories to tell and we're just getting started. This podcast was written, hosted, and edited by Agas Amiras. Thank you for listening and we hope to see you again next time. Sampai jumpa lagi!